Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was imprisoned with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that's the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said. He can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, and we may see and believe. Those who crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, 
the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs, and many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mother Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they may go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Do not be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, Amen. just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Lord, thank you so much that you have risen. It was enough that you died. It was enough that you paid the price for our sins to set us free, Lord. But thank you so much that you, in the display of wondrous power and showing that you are above any other God or any other king, that you defeated death. And now we celebrate that this morning. And I pray that you would be with Pastor David, that you would give him the words of your Holy Spirit to lift our hearts and to remember your crucifixion and your resurrection today, Lord. Thank you for rising. Amen. Amen. This morning is Easter Sunday. It's the most important day in the Christian calendar because this is the day that we celebrate and we remember that our Lord is alive. He was dead, but he is no longer. It might seem strange to some of you to transition to Easter after going through the book of Daniel over these last 12 weeks um, that we've been doing as a church. In fact, as I was planning out and thinking through the church calendar and planning on what to preach and how to go to, I, I thought about taking a break from Daniel to kind of properly prepare us for Easter. Um, but I decided not to because I do think that Daniel actually has prepared us. Because Daniel was living in the time of exile. right? When Israel was destroyed and their kings were no more. And those last several chapters of apocalyptic literature were looking towards the king who would come. And the eternal kingdom that would never fade away. The Davidic king, the Messiah who would come and who would save them. And it sets the expectation that this king, when he comes, he will defeat all the other kings, all the other kingdoms, and he will rule and reign forever. Amen. And that's what we remember and what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. As you heard, through the, as we read the Gospel of Mark this morning, so often it mentions the king, king, king of the Jews. They mocked him. They didn't believe him because they didn't understand what was happening on Good Friday on an Easter Sunday was exactly what Daniel had gotten glimpses of. That this was the king. And this is how he came to rule and to reign. And the resurrection founded the kingdom of God at that empty tomb. And that's what we gather here to worship and to remember because that moment is the foundation of our faith. It is the most important event in all of history. It is certainly the most important event in the life of a Christian. 
So this morning we are going to continue reading from the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to focus on those last or these first eight verses in chapter 16 of Mark. And we're going to talk about the resurrection and how do we respond to the resurrection. And what we'll see is there's the surprise of the resurrection, the commission of the resurrection, and then finally our response, which we'll have an opportunity to do so. So if you take notes in your, in your bulletin, your first blank, the first thing we'll look at is we'll see that the resurrection surprises us. The resurrection surprises us. The problem of being on this side of Easter is that we are no longer surprised by the fact that Jesus came out of that tomb. In fact, as we were reading those scriptures, you may have been feeling yourself in your heart, hey, wait, why are we reading this? Let's get to the resurrection. The resurrection's coming. And so it loses the tension that the disciples felt in those moments when they watched those nails go into his hands. They weren't anticipating a resurrection. They thought that was the end. If you've grown up in church, you've no doubt attended dozens of Easter Sunday services. I mean, you've probably heard, no doubt, countless other times that the resurrection of Jesus has been preached and proclaimed. At least I hope you have, if you've been to church at all. So the problem can be that we can think, oh yeah, resurrection, I, I've got it. It's like rewatching or reading a whodunit mystery when you already know who the murderer is. It kind of loses a bit of its intrigue. That should not be so for us as believers because the resurrection was a surprise on the first Easter Sunday. Not a single one of Jesus' followers or disciples expected it. They didn't think that he would come out of that tomb alive. No matter how many times he told them that's exactly what was going to happen, they still didn't believe it and didn't buy it. And how do we know they didn't expect it? Well, they weren't there waiting for it. If they expected that he wasn't dead, they wouldn't have ran away in fear and had been in hiding. They would have been tailgating and waiting for him to emerge so they could celebrate. Even with the Sabbath, they would have come at first life. And in fact, this is some of what the women do in Mark 16. We see this in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, they had to be inside to observe the Sabbath. As soon as it was over, the women emerged. Mary Magdala, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. Now they've waited out the Sabbath. These three women are going to the tomb. They were there throughout Jesus' ministry following him along with his other male disciples. They were there at the cross even when others had abandoned him and now they will be there at the tomb. And they leave in verse 2 at the very early of the first day of the week when the sun had risen they went out to the tomb. As soon as that sun comes up, they are headed out to see Jesus. This makes it seem like it is planned. It wasn't just a spontaneous decision. They already had their bags packed, their spices set aside. I think they had a conversation ahead of time before they left on Friday that they were going to do this and meet and come back and see the tomb together. As soon as the sun peeked over the hills, they were already awake and dressed and ready to walk out the door is what it reads like. Well, the sun, Calvin is like that at three. As soon as the sun is up and it peeks through his curtains, he's yelling on the monitor saying, it's time to be awake. It's time to be awake. The sun's up. Let's go, Dad. But they didn't leave early because they thought that Jesus was alive. They went thinking he was dead. Even in their faithfulness, they didn't abandon Jesus, but they still did not expect the resurrection. They're going there to care for his body. They brought spices that they might go and anoint him. They went to care for a body that they thought had already grown stiff and hard and was beginning to decay. And they wanted to care for the Savior and the man that they loved and followed. These don't seem to be the actions of women who think that Jesus is still alive. Otherwise, they wouldn't have brought these spices. 
And they also mention in verse 3, they go and they're saying to one another, well, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Because this tells us no man is with them to help. The men are all gone. They're hiding. Maybe we shouldn't be too hard on them because their leader was just killed. Maybe they thought they were next. But the women weren't afraid. They go, but the disciples don't even dare. But it shows too, they expect Jesus is behind that rock. That big stone that is in front of the tomb covering it. They don't, they're trying to figure out, well, how are we going to get it open? Because we know his body is back there. And they're surprised when they show up in four. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. And it was very large. This is a massive stone. It doesn't just roll away on its own because the wind blows hard. Something supernatural had to have happened. The stone was already moved in verse 5, and they walk in the tomb, not quite knowing what they're going to see, but still expecting Jesus' body to be there. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, and he's dressed in a white robe. And they're alarmed. That's an understandable reaction. I would be alarmed too if I went into a grave and I found somebody alive. I would not be in there long. I would be running somewhere else. <laughs> They're not expecting, and they're not expecting Jesus' body to be missing, but it's not there. And they definitely didn't think they would be conversing this morning when they woke up at dawn with an angel dressed in white. And this angel tells them in verse 6, don't be alarmed. And then that verse there too, so often in Scripture, tells us don't be afraid. That's not him rebuking them for their fear. This is words of comfort. Like I comfort my son, when he's scared and thinks he's in danger, and I'm telling him, don't, don't be alarmed, I have you. Angel says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, who is dead, who you watched him breathe his last. You watched the blood stop flowing from his body because there was no more left. He is risen, and he's not here. Come see where the place where they laid him. You can see where his body used to be. The angel says, come and see, it's gone. He doesn't need your spices at all. His body is well cared for and glorified. It's better than you could have ever imagined. Scars and all. The resurrection is a surprise for these women on Easter Sunday, but it's still a surprise for us today. Because the gospel that we believe as Christians is surprising. Right? Everyone in the world, everyone alive believes that there's something wrong with the world. Nobody believes that everything is as it should be, that we are in a perfect utopia. No one believes that. Even those who believe there is no such thing as God think, well, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with me. There, at least there's something wrong with you. We'll think that. And we disagree and they'll fight over the solution and the problem. But what the gospel of when Jesus and the open, empty tomb proclaim to us is that Jesus is the solution. Our problem isn't just that we need a better environment. That maybe if people were kinder to us as a children, that we could grow up and the world could be better and perfect. The solution isn't that we could just try harder. Let's just grit our teeth. And maybe we can do it. Maybe we can self-actualize and become better. The solution isn't just that maybe we could just slowly evolve and get smarter and smarter and become more righteous and just because that hasn't worked over the last 2,000 years. We're just as bad as we were back then. We're just fancier at it. We're more efficient in our evil. 
The reality is we are stuck in our sins and the only way out is Jesus. And the surprise of the gospel is the idea that God himself would come down to earth to save us. That he would not leave us alone. I had a pastor once, who, it seemed like his favorite word was condescend because he would say it at least ten times every single Sunday and talk about God condescending down to us. And I've never been able to forget it or to hear it in any other way because I usually think of condescend as negative. But God does condescend because he didn't have to come down from heaven to deliver us. It was a step down from glory to hang out with sinners like you and me and Peter and John and James. But our God did it. And deep down, we don't really believe that we deserve salvation. We definitely don't want to be given it, right? We want to earn it on our own. Don't pity me. I want to get it by myself. We might think we can handle it on our own if we just read enough books, watch the right documentary, eat a certain way, maybe get enough therapy. Maybe we can make ourselves good enough to get salvation on our own. Don't just give it to me, God. Let me do something here. Let me help. God doesn't need our help. You and I didn't contribute anything to Easter Sunday. If anything, what we contributed was putting him in the grave with our sin. And honestly, we don't always truly believe that God loves us. Even deep down as believers, we can continually doubt or hear the whisper of the enemy in our ear that God doesn't love you. Maybe he loves others, or maybe he loved you once, but you kept sinning and so his love is done. He's forgiven you enough. We don't truly always believe that God would care so much about us that he would choose to die on our behalf. That he really would die for you. Not just you generally, but you specifically. And some struggle to even believe that this is the plan that God would have for the universe. They're expecting more from God. That really? This was your plan, God? The disciples certainly expected more. This is not what they pictured when they thought they were following the Messiah, the King of the Jews. They expected a different kind of kingdom, a better kingdom in their minds. They wanted a savior who would crush tyrants and their enemies, who would bring justice and change laws and set them free. But Jesus crushed the tyrant of sin and death on the cross. And he brought justice where our sins were paid for. And he brought eternal prosperity for us in the resurrection. And because of the resurrection of the empty tomb, we can have eternal life. And the resurrection, it is surprising that this is what God would choose to do. Imagine telling someone who's not a believer, who knows very little of Jesus, thinking, you know, I believe that God came and acted in human history. Go, really? Well, what did he do? Well, he came and then he died. And then he came back to life to deliver us from our sins. They would go, really? I might expect something flashier, more exciting. Maybe he would defeat the Romans or lead a mighty army of angels. That sounds better, but no, what our God did was greater than we could imagine, even if it was unexpected. But at the resurrection, it is more than surprise and shock us. The resurrection also commissions us. In your second blank, the resurrection commissions us. The resurrection, it has a transforming effect on our lives. It is not just something that happened 
way back in the past 2,000 years ago. And now we come together, we remember it, you know, because it was pretty cool and it's a nice story, so we want to talk about it. No, it affects the trajectory of our lives eternally and temporally. Look at verse 7. After the angel informs the women of the resurrection, he gives them a mission. He says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They're commanded to go and to tell the disciples that the resurrection has happened. The resurrection, it's not just about them. It's not just about these women individually. We are far too individualistic in our culture that we can miss this. We can think about Jesus is just here for me and Jesus and my relationship with him and that's it. No, it's about the kingdom of God. It is about more than just you. Jesus did come and he did die for you, but he didn't die for just you. He died for others too. The resurrection isn't just about them. The women can start to think it's just about them and Jesus, but the women aren't told, wow, so glad that you're here. You made it. No one else made it, but you did. You figured it out. So you can go and see Jesus in Galilee, but don't tell anybody else. It's just for you and Jesus, your little secret. No, they're commanded to go and invite others and tell them about Jesus. Go tell the disciples about him. The resurrection demands a commissioning. And there are several things that are unique about this commissioning. The first one is that the women are the first to witness the resurrection. This is unique. They're the primary witnesses to the greatest event in human history. Which, if you are inventing a story of religion, this is a terrible choice. Because people don't value women and they don't trust women. They can't be witnesses. They must be hysterical. Who would listen to them? They got it wrong. They're not qualified. They don't understand. They must have been fooled. That's what the world would say. But that's not what our Savior says. In the eyes of our Savior, in the eyes of the kingdom of God, the, the people that the world looks down on and thinks are low and are weak are thought highly of in his eyes. And the low and the weak and the women are elevated in the kingdom of God. And these women who are overlooked and forgotten and rejected become the first witnesses of Jesus on that Easter Sunday. And they're the first to proclaim the good news. But look who else is included in this commissioning. So go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Why is Peter's name specifically mentioned here? It's not just because it's the only disciple that the angel knew. Okay, it's not just because Mark, you know, didn't want to list all 12. That would have been annoying. So he just picked the best one or his favorite. No, Peter's name is mentioned specifically. Why? Well, what was Peter doing most recently? Peter was denying Jesus three times. Three separate times. He had three chances. Right? We, we have this with, with our sons. We do time out with Calvin. He does something and we get on him. He says, no, let me try again. Let me try again. Peter got to try again three times. And all three times he failed. All three times Peter said, I don't even know Jesus. I want nothing to do with that Jesus. No, I've never even seen him. I've never even hung out with him. I just happened to be here. And when that rooster crowed, Peter wept because he recognized the depth of his sin and his betrayal of the Lord that he loved. But is Peter too washed up? 
Is Peter too far gone to be used by God? Is this kind of commissioning by the resurrection, is it just for the elite? Is it just for those who don't mess things up? Is it just for those who are perfect or who get it right? Or is it also for sinners and blasphemers like Peter? And the angel says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Tell Peter that his last moments and memories of Jesus is not the end of the story. Tell Peter that Jesus is not done with him yet. Tell Peter that his terrible sin, it doesn't leave him cast out. And if that is true of Peter, that is also true of you. That your darkest moment, that your deepest sin, nothing leaves you so far from Jesus that he cannot use you. And that he does not want to use you and commission you. Because, listen, you might tell yourself, well, yeah, Jesus can use others, but I'm a poor messenger. Well, none of us are good messengers. Certainly none of us are perfect messengers, but we do serve the perfect message in our risen Savior. And it's not because we are awesome, but it's because Jesus is alive. And none of us are qualified. Or none of us are unqualified, truly. If you've met Jesus, if you're a believer, if you believe these words that we have read, that he really is risen from the dead, you've been commissioned to tell others that he is alive. You don't need an evangelism class. You don't need to read a few books. You don't need to go to seminary. You just need to be obedient and go and tell. And one of the comforts of this commissioning that the women receive is that Jesus is going before them. He tells them, go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. That if you go, if you obey me, if you follow, if you walk out this commissioning, you're going to see Jesus. He's already walking. Jesus is already on mission. He's already heading to the disciples and heading to others to reveal himself that he is alive. And so you go, not having to do this all on your own. Jesus has already gone before you. You get to walk in his footsteps until you catch up. And the women, they get to participate in the preparing people for the arrival of the risen Savior. Jesus doesn't leave us alone in this. He doesn't just pat us on the back and say, go, you figure it out. I, I did a lot of works, but now you're on your own from here. But today our position is much the same, even all these years later after the resurrection. Our Savior will return again. One day he will come and the trumpet will sound and he will ride across the sky and it will be undeniable. Even those who mocked him, even those who killed him like the centurion before, will stand in the sky and see him and say, truly Jesus was the Son of God. Because there he is. And what we get to do is we get to tell people ahead of time that that's coming. And just as Jesus went before the women, the Holy Spirit goes before us as well. The Holy Spirit is the one who reaches and who prepares people's hearts to receive the gospel. We are not alone in our discipling of other people. It is not just for us. We don't have to bear the responsibility or the weight of, well, I hope they respond correctly, and if they don't, it must have been me. It must have been my fault. I must have not have had the right words. Maybe I should have read that book. I, maybe I shouldn't have fallen asleep last Sunday when the pastor was talking about this. Maybe I could have figured it out better. No, but we can't save people. Only God can. And our God and the Holy Spirit is busy at work, including in the work of the hearts of sinners. 
preparing them for when you tell them about Jesus. He goes before us, and yet he invites us to participate with him. We get to tell them about Jesus as well. God lets us help him. Much like I let my children help me with chores around the house. God lets us help. And the reality is that the resurrection, it commissions, it commissions us because it transforms us. Right? When you experience something that is life-changing, you have to tell someone about it. Even if you just experience something that is crazy or unexpected, you, you want to tell somebody. You look around to see if anybody's nearby so you can share this thing I just saw. Or let me text it or let me call somebody. Let me walk across the street and knock on my neighbor's door. Because this is just so cool. I just, I got to tell somebody. I can't just sit here with this on my own. Right? You might think um, between Bree and I that she is much more of the talker and that I am not. Uh, because I'm, I can be more reserved and introverted and I get a lot of my talking out on Sunday morning and then usually I'm, I'm done for most of the week. But Brianna will tell you that that is not quite true when we get home. Because I usually have to do this thing, especially before we go to bed every night, where I've got to tell her pretty much everything. <laughs> everything that's happened today, I need to fill her in on. Because it drives me crazy that something significant, or I saw something and I thought it was cool and it was really good, and I've got to tell somebody about it, and well, she's the only one who has to listen to me, so she ends up hearing about all of it. Right? Because I'm just excited. I, I can't fall asleep unless every thought that I've had today goes to her. Right? Maybe some of you are like that. Well, you're, you're not alone. Well, the resurrection of Jesus is much greater than any of those things. Better than the greatest joke that you saw today or the news story that you can't believe. It is the greatest event in human history. And surely, if you believe it, it must have changed your life. How could you not tell someone about it? If you can't tell someone about it, then it tells me I'm not quite sure it has changed your life. Or at least you don't recognize the significance of it. We should want as believers to just go and tell people about Jesus. We should want to just sit with other believers who believe the thing that we do and all this morning just talk. Isn't it crazy that Jesus came back to life? Let's just talk about that. I know we've talked about it a thousand times before, but I'm amazed by it again. Let's talk about it one more time. That's what we should do, and that's what the resurrection does. It commissions us. The final question that we have here is really how will you respond to the resurrection? How will you respond to the resurrection? I love Mark's gospel. It is my favorite ending of any of the gospels. And it's the most unique of any of them, if you've noticed as well. And it actually is because it ends on a bit of a down note. It doesn't end exactly as high as the others do. In your Bible, it probably has a note, and you may wonder why I stopped at verse 8. Or your, may, your Bible, like mine, might have a note that says something like, well, some of the earliest manuscripts you know, don't include the rest of the ending of chapter 16. This is a longer discussion I'm not going into tonight. We'll dive deeper in it on Wednesday night if you want to come back for that. I'll give you a short answer and then I'll give you a much longer answer on Wednesday. If you can't be with us on Wednesday and you want a longer answer, pull me aside. I'll still have some words to tell you because I think it's kind of cool. But the short answer is that the verse 8, that appears to be the original ending of the Gospel of Mark. But because it's a little different and it's a little darker-ish tone... 
other copies of the gospel much later on. They just added in some of the details from the other gospels because they thought, well, that's strange. That's weird. You can't end your gospel like that, Mark. You need to end it like Mark and, or Matthew and Luke and John. But these additions, nothing in it, it doesn't add anything that we don't know. It doesn't add anything unique from other places. And this is one of the only places, there's only one other place in Scripture that's like this in the Bible that is like this whatsoever. Okay, so it's weird and it's unique, but all of this, it doesn't give you any reason to doubt the gospel of Mark or to doubt that the Bible is true or to doubt that he really wrote this or to doubt that the resurrection really happened because the resurrection isn't added later, just some extra details about the Great Commission. And again, Wednesday I'll go deeper into to why and how this kind of is. But basically what we have with Mark, like all of the other gospels, they're like directors directing the same movie. Right, you've probably seen, if you've grown up in church, you've probably seen a number of Jesus films or Jesus television shows. I notice that we're telling all the same stories, but they tell them slightly differently. Right, the lighting is different, or the choices are different, or some lines are included here or there. And so what, what Mark does is he's like this. This is his kind of unique presentation of the gospel. And he ends it this way on verse 8 on purpose. He stops there. In verse 8, and the women go out, they flee the tomb, having been commissioned, trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then the screen goes black, and the credits roll, and the movie's over. Okay, if that's where it ends, it makes you go, what? Because it's supposed to. Because what Mark wants you to do is he wants that to stop, and then he wants you to turn around, and he wants you to look at your own heart and ask yourself, well, well the women didn't go telling anyone. They, they, they seemed to run in scared. Well, what about, what about me? How would I respond? The angel tells me and commissions me and gives me to tell the, the commission of telling people about the resurrection. What will I do? And this is significant too because in Mark's gospel, the women are always portrayed in a positive light. The disciples, the male disciples are always messing up and they're bungling things and they're not getting it right. But women repeatedly in Mark's gospel are held up as exemplars of the faith. They're held up as getting things right when everyone else is getting it wrong except for here. It's different. Even they fail. Now why would he end it this way? He doesn't end it this way because he knows later they do. They go and they tell the disciples. We know that in the other gospels. But he ends it here so that we have to ask ourselves, how will I respond to the resurrection? Will I run and be afraid or will I run and will I tell people about Jesus? And the uncomfortable minor note that it stops on forces us to sit there. And why might we be too afraid? Well, we might, there's a number of reasons we might not tell people about Jesus. We might not tell people because we assume everyone knows already. This can be a danger of living in a community like ours. All right, if you live in a place that's filled with churches and almost everybody at least says they're a Christian, it can make you feel like, well, it seems like the gospel work's done. We're good, right? Everyone's heard of Jesus. I don't think we need to go tell more people about Jesus. Everybody's heard of him already. Well, if that was true... I think our community would feel a little different. I think it would look differently. And it's not that I don't love it here. I, I do. This is a wonderful place to live. I'm happy to be a pastor here. I'm planning on being here as long as the Lord has me. But if it was true, it should seem like revival broke out, shouldn't it? If everybody here who says they know Jesus really knows Jesus and has really been transformed by the resurrection, don't you think everything would look different? I think we probably wouldn't. Our community would be filled with love and compassion. Shouldn't crime mostly just be abolished? Because while everyone's following Jesus? Sure, well, in Acts 2, it says they didn't have any poor among them. I see a lot of poor and homeless in our community. 
Well, if that was true too, wouldn't our churches stop splitting so often? Wouldn't our churches not compete against each other for their own slices of kingdoms and instead just realize, yeah, we're, we're all following the risen Savior. Who cares? I think our community needs to hear about Jesus still. So we also might be afraid because like the women, they were afraid of what people might say. We might be afraid that people might have questions that we don't have good answers for. They might quote an old dead German theologian we've never heard of, and it sounds really good, and I don't know how to argue with that, so we quit. Or they might ask us, prove the resurrection, and go, well, I don't know how to prove it. And we might be scared of the resurrection. We might be afraid that it could be true. Some of you in this room, this might be you. Because if the resurrection actually is true of the stuff that I have been saying, of the verses from God's word, if this really is the word of God describing things that God actually did and said, if this is true, then you would have to change your life. It would mean that you would have to surrender and give your life to Christ. I remember um, witnessing to a friend of mine. And I'd been talking to her. We'd been talking off and on about Jesus for a number of years. And she finally, she was at a dark point in her life. And I was telling her again of Jesus and the resurrection and his love and his forgiveness of sins for her. That all she had to do is put her faith in Jesus. And she said, you know, I, I really do think that you're right. I really do think Jesus, this is probably all true. But, man, if it is and if I accept it, I know I'm going to have to change. I know my life is going to be a little different. And, you know, I'm just not really sure that I want to. I appreciated her honesty. And that might be you in this room. That you know deep down in your heart the resurrection is true, but you're just scared to say that it is. Or maybe you might just doubt the resurrection is true. I'm not so foolish to believe that everyone in this room really does believe that Jesus was dead in the grave and his heart was not beating for three days. It wasn't he was pretending. It wasn't he just recovered. This wasn't a story that was invented later. In fact, there are studies that show that even only 66% of professing Christians believe that Jesus actually came back to life. There are some, there's a significant article I read in the Christian Century Journal that was arguing that, you know, bodily resurrection doesn't actually matter. It really was spiritual resurrection. And I mean, it's just such a mystical, nice story anyway. Who really cares if he really came back to life or not? Some of you might shake your head and that others would doubt the resurrection. As we read this morning in our call to worship in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not truly raised from the dead, Christians are to be most pitied because everything we are doing this morning is a waste of time. And when you die, you die, and that's it. But, in fact, he was risen from the grave. He is alive, and that is the only fact that matters. Some of you might not doubt the resurrection, but you're honestly bored by it. You might not admit it or say it out loud because you know deep down you shouldn't say such things, but you think it. You might have came this morning hoping that you'd learn something new, right? I'd tell you a new Greek word you hadn't heard or some fact you hadn't seen before because, well, you've heard the resurrection story before. It can get old and boring. This is even a temptation I see other pastors have. On Sunday, well, it's a big Sunday. It's our Super Bowl. We got to do, you know, it's exciting. So I got to do something different. And, you know, well, 
No, this is just, we're here to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. I don't have anything different. I have the same old story that we've been telling since the women left the tomb. Jesus is alive. And what every single one of us need to do, how do we respond? What we need to do is we need to embrace and believe the resurrection of Jesus. Period. The end. That should be your response. If you're in this room and you're not a believer... Maybe you're in this room this morning and you're not even sure why or you know why you're here and you're not really that happy that you're here, but you're here anyway. And you, know, you don't know what to think about Jesus. You know, I, I would be more than happy to talk with you, more than happy even to just listen to you, listen to your questions or your objections. Or any of our elders or Pastor Rob, we'd love to talk to you, but the reality of the resurrection is before you and you have a choice to make. How will you respond to the resurrection? And what you should do is you should embrace Jesus and you should put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. Because God came and bled and died on the cross for your sin. And Jesus died on that cross because he loves you, because he cares for you, and because he wants you to experience resurrection life forever when he returns. But believers, Christians, you need to embrace the resurrection as well. This wasn't just something that you embraced a long time ago when it was new once. And now you're good. You can move on to deeper, more exciting, more interesting theological things. And then you can move on to the good stuff. The resurrection is the good stuff. Everything is about the resurrection. Nothing else makes sense if this is not true. This has to be the core of our lives. This is the deepest stuff imaginable. If you are bored by the resurrection, you honestly need to repent and get a better imagination. If the resurrection bores you, you need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to melt your cold heart and to help you fall in love with Jesus once again. And if I can be honest, that is a prayer that I have had to pray in my life more times than once because I've gotten distracted by other things I thought were shinier than just the reality of a risen Savior. And believers, too, you need to share the good news of the resurrection. You need to go. You need to tell people who don't know Jesus that he is alive, to share how he has transformed you. But you also need to go and you need to tell other disciples of Jesus that Jesus is alive, too. Sometimes one of the best things that we can do for one another as believers is remind each other of the foundations of our faith. Hey, Jesus loves you. Hey, Jesus died for you. Hey, Jesus was resurrected to bring you new life. We don't just need to tell unbelievers that. We need to tell each other that as well so that we don't forget. You don't have to go overseas, but you might have to go across your street. You might have to go have an uncomfortable conversation with somebody that you know doesn't know Jesus, that you've really been putting it off. Easter is a great way to do this. It's natural. Even with other believers, you can just ask, hey, so you really think all that's true? What do you think of this? Is that just a story? Or did it really happen? You might, not even know, you might know somebody, too, who claims to be a believer that doesn't actually believe in the resurrection or who doesn't actually follow Jesus. Maybe they believe it, but it hasn't transformed them. This morning we were talking about responding to the resurrection. The reality is that the resurrection, it surprises us. And then it commissions us. It sends us out. And the question we have to ask is how will we respond to the resurrection? Will we receive the commission and walk in it? Or will we run away afraid? 
What I challenge and encourage all of you to do is to embrace Jesus and to find resurrection life. Don't waste your commission. Do not be afraid. He is risen. Our God is alive. We pray and we're going to transition to a time of communion. Lord, I ask that you would fill this place, Lord Jesus. I ask that your spirit would be here in a unique and special way. I pray that you would encourage us. I pray the hearts in this room that are cold and bored and hard would be melted by you. Lord, help us return to our first love. Help us fall more in love with you, Jesus. Help us continue to be amazed by the resurrection. Lord, would our brains and our hearts not go on autopilot when we hear the gospel? Would they break anew with love for you? And Lord, those who are in here who do not know you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work on their hearts. I pray that you would, you would call them, that you would draw them to yourself, and I pray that they would respond and embrace you with faith. And they would come and taste and see that you are good. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you are not just the God who dies for us. You are the God who has defeated death. The God who entered the grave and who took the keys of hell and who rose again. And your resurrection proves and demonstrates to the world, to the heavens, and to the earth, now and forevermore, that our sins are forgiven and salvation is here for any who believe. We thank you and we praise you. Your holy and precious name, amen. Why don't you stand one last time as we sing and worship our risen Savior. Hallelujah, our Savior is risen. I invite you, before I read the benediction, next week we're going to start a new sermon series in, the, in Galatians. Um, and we're going to be calling it Gospel Distortions. We're going to see and kind of study over the next 10-ish weeks all the ways that the wonderful news of the gospel and the resurrection of our Savior can get distorted and misunderstood so we can make sure that we understand what it really means. Our benediction from Hebrews is now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.